Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. While we haven't assembled our entire panel, once again, we come to you through the power of Zoom and remote meetings to bring you our stories and thoughts for the month. And with that, we'll commence. Today, because Kathy is not with us, uh, we're going to uh, have Al Larkin sit in with Al. Yes. What are your thoughts on what has transpired over these last weeks? Oh, where do we begin? Well, there's not a lot of activity uh, around the house, uh, although we're doing more Zooms than we have before. Um, I miss my friends. Uh, I miss going to church. Uh, oh, so many things, but at least the weather is great now. We have sunshine. Yep. Some days, and uh, we'll make the most of that. We'll, we've been waiting for that anyway, and so, uh, you know, we're, we have to bloom wherever we're planted, I guess, and that's, uh, that's our situation, and uh, just make the most of it, and, and uh, no griping, uh, just uh, bear with it and do whatever's possible. Exactly. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay safe, indeed. I've also been uh, working from home as well, as I am right now, <laughs> and um, I, kn- I know that it's been, you know, one Zoom meeting after another, you know, to keep things running smoothly, uh, and uh, yeah, I've been watching the weather warm up outside, getting out a little sunshine, etc., mm-hmm. a bit of walking where I can, um, but life is indeed very different. Um, that said, let's meet our writers for today. Hi. I'm Faith Flaherty. I'm Al Larkin. Hi, Steve Sherlock here. Hey, I'm Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Pat Winiarski. There we go, our stalwart group ready to bring you stories today. Al, I think we ought to jump right in with our first story. And I think, as always, a great beginning always rests with Faith Flaherty. Hey, mine isn't a story. It's a poem. Great. Yes. Very nice. Kind of preachy, which makes it not a poem. But I hope alluding to nature in my word diction will deflect from my tendency to moralize. Hence, the poem is a crossbred nature poem mixed with biology and science, and I call it pandemic poetry. Okay? Uh-huh. All right. The devil rides on bacilli, pernicious evil growing from dark pathogens on earth in a Wuhan lab or on the open market, eaten by an ant swallowed by a bat, lapped by a pangolin, relished by a man. No reason to make a do. Some always look to blame. Others always find conspiracy. Then there's just bad karma. The fact that it survives, washing hands, wearing gloves, donning face masks is a testimony to the stubbornness of an enemy beyond our eyes, waiting to pounce and ride round the world with abandonment. What weapon will kill it? Soap and vaccine will slow, but never have victory over a bloodless, fleshless germ. Wait till summer, some say. The heat will kill the virus. Then throw this bane back to hell where it was conceived. Cool. Wow. I like that, boy. Right on. There you go. Off to a great start. That was fabulous. Thank you. It was. Who do we want to go to next, Al? Who, who, what are you in the mood for? Al, let's go to Steve. Steve's ready. Okay, so it's a nice warm day, so I decided to go back 
to a cold winter morning. So put your coats on. No! (laughs) (laughs) It was a cold winter Sunday morning many years ago. We were living in Flemington, New Jersey. If you've traveled through New Jersey, you may have seen a sign for the Flemington Furs, not far from where we were, out in the country where the Garden State really gets its name. We had a sliding door, double slider, where most residents would have called a dining room. We had converted that to our kids' playroom, where my daughters were busy in their own worlds. The door looks out into our unfenced backyard, And then after about 60 yards or so, it slopes down gradually into a large triangle, kind of framed or uh, by the neighboring uh, houses. And in the center of the triangle was a playground where certainly in the warmer months, the kids would be there for hours and hours. I was preparing breakfast in the kitchen. The kitchen windows conveniently looked out the same way. It was a good vantage point for us to keep track of where the kids were and what was going on. Hey, Dad, look at that. One of my daughters had decided to look up from their play world for a minute and turning to the window, I looked out and I saw a neighbor walking on the snow. Yes, on the snow, not in the snow, but on top of the snow. It had snowed Saturday. And the precipitation had gradually changed over to freezing rain, and it created a nice hard surface on top of the snow. So I said, well, that looks like it's going to be good to go sledding after breakfast. Of course, that was a key word because they came back and said, yes, when's breakfast? I'm hungry. (laughs) Me too. Needless to say, breakfast time went very quickly as we're all excited to go sledding. The girls helped to get the dishes out and to clean up after eating. They were inspired by that opportunity to go sledding. My wife, Dolores, decided to stay indoors. It was gonna be warm and quiet while the kids, big and small, were outside. So bundled up in snowsuits, fully booted, capped, mittened, we opened the garage door and headed out across the yard around to the backyard. It was slow moving as the surface would have been like an ice rink had it been flat, but it was kind of uneasy, uneven. I was using the sled for leverage, and Allison was hanging on me, Carolyn hanging on her. So kind of in that chain format, we made our way to the back and to the top of that slope. I plopped the sled down, and it almost ran away from me. It was so slick. So I got down on the sled, anchored my feet in the back, arms in the front to keep it from running. Allison laid down on top of me. Carolyn laid down on top of her, giggling, of course, all the while, while Allison is complaining, be careful, come on, don't step there, blah, blah, blah. Ready? Yes, let's go, go, go. So I used my feet to walk the sled forward while pulling with my hands, And after about 10 feet or slow, that wasn't necessary. Gravity just took over. We were off on our way, gradually picking up speed. I brought my hands in to steer the sled as the playground equipment began approaching us. Go through the swings! That would be easy. 
I wouldn't have to move. No steering required. But I realized it wasn't just me on the sled. My two daughters were on top. And it took only a split second, but that realization came instantly. The risk was too great. So I did steer safely around the swings and the slide set. And those four-inch posts looked rather ominous now that they were much closer to us than they did when we were up on the top of the hill. As we got to the bottom, the realization sank in. I was no longer a kid. I had grown up. As a father, I had responsibilities. Let's do it again. Come on, Dad. <laughs> okay. His dad reflexes kicked in. Yes. <laughs> I grew up. No. No. <laughs> there goes Peter Pan was my hero. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I'm thinking Pat Winiarski. That's what I'm thinking, Al. All right, I think Pat's uh, probably ready. You got us, Pat? I am. All right, honey, go for it. I wrote a profile in regard to my grandmother, and I titled it, My Grandmother's Hands. Hmm. Robin Red by Qtex. The ever-present bottle had a place of honor on my grandmother's bureau. In awe, I watched as she dabbed the bright red polish on any chips that her nails had sustained as she went about her daily tasks in the large house on Maynard Street. Her perfectly manicured nails did not impede the constant motion of her fingers as they sewed, crocheted, knitted, cooked, and baked. Not only were these hands busy, but they also were incredibly talented. A fourth bedroom turned sewing room was the magical place where pretty clothes for my favorite dolls were whipped up quickly on a foot pedal singer sewing machine. Happiness abounded as I viewed the finished products and dressed my dolls in stylish new outfits. Dressmaking was an inherent art. As a young unmarried woman, my grandmother opened her own dressmaking shop in Norwich, Connecticut, circa 1915. Crocheting was her nightly pastime after a day of housekeeping chores. Fashioning doilies for parlor tables and the arms and backs of upholstered chairs, as well as bedspreads for both twin and double beds, kept her nimble fingers which held a crochet hook, always in silver, flying through the white or ecru thread. Today, I am still in possession of the intricately patterned fringed bedspreads. Now safely stored, these artful masterpieces invoke a sense of wonder in me. How did my grandmother's hands create such beautiful heirlooms? Delicious meals were produced in my grandmother's cozy kitchen. I loved to go to her house as a child to indulge in her scrumptious chicken pies, hearty beef stews, and creamy macaroni and cheese piled high with buttery breadcrumbs. 
long after my childhood and well into my adulthood, I would race to her home for my favorite dishes. The warmth of her meals, always lovingly made, soothed both my body and my soul. And not to be forgotten were her baking skills. Masterful hands demonstrated great skill and a flair for the beautiful presentation of her consummate desserts. Light, airy cream puffs, decadent devil's food cake topped with buttercream frosting, sprinkled with flake coconut, and plump cherry wink cookies were pure delight. How I love to whip the cream, to scatter the coconut, and to crush the cornflakes that added the crunch to cherry winks. At the age of 82, my grandmother decided to learn a new craft. She was determined to teach herself cruel embroidery. Together, we would go to the craft store on Benefit Street, where she would choose a project. More than 40 years have passed since her first piece was completed, yet all are in perfect condition, always reminding me of her extraordinary talents. I was truly amazed as she became proficient in this newfound skill, deftly embroidering the various colors of twisted worsted yarn into charming works of art. Framed and hung on the walls of my home, these pieces affectionately linked me to my grandmother every day. Knitting, a skill she had learned early in life, inspired multicolored Afghans to ward off the chill of winter. But the loveliest and most loving items she knitted were soft, warm, white and yellow blankets, cute booties and bibs, and toasty mittens for my sons. The knitted white blanket in which both were wrapped at their christenings has been passed down to my grandsons. On the day of each of their christenings, I placed the blanket on them and asked my son to take a picture. My grandsons now have in their possession a beautiful, soft, white blanket knitted by their great-great-grandmother. My wish is that this heirloom be passed down to my grandson's children. Robin red nail polish may have embellished my grandmother's fingers, but it didn't tell the true story of the myriad creative projects her loving, graceful, talented hands accomplished. Beautiful memoir. Wow. wow. And those uh, hands uh, were guided by a heart. Very generous, loving uh, woman she was. What a lady. Well said, Bill. Uh, thank you. Okay, Wild Bill, what do you got? I got a, got a song that I wrote and I, and I got a poem. Excellent. When, when I first started writing uh, these poems, uh, I used to sing them like, like songs, you know. Mm-hmm. This one really is a song, and I had this melody in my head. What woke up, and I wrote these words to it. So, so here goes. <laughs> I'll always love you, darling. I'll always care for you. You bring bright sunshine whenever I see you. 
My lonely days are over, my lonely days are through. Please be my love forever, my baby, I love you. The beauty you possess, dear, the beauty that I see is like the sparkling sunshine when you look at me. You're on my mind throughout the day, love. You're on my mind, it's true. Oh, baby, how I love you. Just want to be with you. Just as the time goes past, dear, my lonely days are gone. I'll always love you, sweetheart. My deep, deep love goes on. I'll say goodnight for now, dear. A short goodnight from me. You bring the sunshine, darling. You've opened my eyes to see. How's that? <laughs> I, like, I like the contrast between your two uh, affectionate words for your, your honey there, dear and baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, this, this, is, this, this, is another, this is a poem I wrote. When, when, when I talked to her on the phone, a call from an angel, this I know. Your voice is soft and gentle and low. We'll get used to each other. Our voices will mesh. We'll cook food together and make a big mess. And you'll get chocolate all over your dress. A call from you this morning took me a little by surprise. I'll never hide from you, darling. My arms are open wide. After your call, I couldn't sit still. So very excited, I just have no will. When it comes to you, darling, I'll give you my all. Whatever happens, I'll be there when you fall. I had to take a walk, two miles I did. I like to stay healthy. With you, I'm a kid. I want to play in the rain, with you by my side. Splash in the puddles, my love I won't hide. So happy you've made me, so happy I'll be. Your beauty excites me, my love you will see. So how's that? <laughs> cool, very nice. Good finish. I think before we wrap it up, I think you'll be up next. All right, I'm ready, thanks. Thanks, Peter. Uh, this is a uh, nostalgic piece about uh, young people coming out of the uh, Depression uh, into World War II. Anyway, so it's called The Neighborhood. And let's find out what's going on in the neighborhood. In the early 1940s, we were into World War II, and the effort to win it was greater for some than others, but most people were making sacrifices and doing without, as rationing of many goods was in effect. Life was simple then, at least it was for the children, who accepted their own little world as the only one they knew and made the most of it. When my brother John and I would leave the house, my mother would always ask us uh, where we were going, and the answer most often was out. We were the oldest sons with uh, five other children to look after, and she usually settled for that with just a, uh, don't be late for supper. Besides, everything mothers did in those days was labor intensive, from cooking and baking along with laundry. Busy enough, she was. Out to us in the Boston City area was finding others to amuse ourselves with in street and yard games of every kind you could imagine. Boys might bring along a pocket full of waxed 
baseball cards of their favorite players to swap or gamble with a slide for a win to be the nearest to a chosen wall. Many could play, and the nearest to the wall picked up the other cards to add to his collection. Then there were sidewalks, which were perfect for a tennis match with the four square blocks that became the court. A game would begin with an open palm serve of a pimple or ping ball of the day to the opponent behind his lines who would make a speedy return with his left or right palm staying within the lines to avoid a foul. And on we went to a game of 21. Those same lines were used by placing a bottle cap on the center cross line and hitting it with the ball to knock it over your opponent's line for a game. When one of those balls became damaged, we were not through with it yet, as they were cut in two for a game of half ball, where it was pitched to a player with a broomstick who would take a swipe at that elusive, floating, spinning object with the hope of hitting it for a certain distance that were agreed to to be a single, double, or home run. Other baseball rules applied. Damaged bike tires could be included in that same game as they were cut into six-inch missiles that would go a mile when struck with that broomstick. In a backyard circle, in a backyard, a circle could be carved with a pocket knife in dirt that couldn't grow grass. Then the knife in hand would be flipped down into the circle and the direction of the knife faced determined the slice of land you now owned. The game was called territory and the winner was the one with the most land after five tosses each. With our large family and a tree in our backyard with a Tarzan swing, it became a popular playground for boys and girls. You could climb the fence with a rope and swing out into the middle of the yard with your best while in flight. We also had a slanted wood bulkhead that was perfect for throwing that pimple or pink ball hot enough to ricochet back to you, not unlike the kids today with a net. There was no end to the games you could play with a ball and a wall. With a large gang in the yard, you had enough kids to play Red Rover, Red Rover, where someone is selected from one team to bust through your line of held hands, and they are captured if you stop them. Then there was knock the can off the rock, where the one who was it placed his tin can on a rock while others threw cans to knock it off. When this happened to the one who was it, had to scramble to place both yours on his, on top of the rock, and to make you it. Lots of yelling and screaming for this no-cost amusement. Our living at an intersection allowed us to play corners, where four players played corners, and the one that was it was in the middle of the street. It was somewhat like musical chairs. People on the corners would make signs with their eyes for a swap of corners, and the it person had to watch everybody and make a speedy run to the empty corner to beat one of the swappers to that corner first. So if that person was beat, 
they would now be the one who was it. During that race, people on the two other corners may also swap places. The streets were a relatively safe place to play in those days, as few cars would come by since men were away at war, gas was rationed, and not many women were driving in the early 1940s. With very few baseball gloves or footballs in the neighborhood, we had to improvise with rags and paper to make balls for playing baseball or football. Sure could have used duct tape then. Girls had games that they were very adept at playing along the sidewalk or street. They had hopscotch, jump rope, and something called jacks, all of which call for one to be graceful and nimble, something most boys were not always good at. When the girls weren't looking, some boys might try it and give the girls a laugh if they caught sight of those attempts. Some of the common games were hide-and-seek, tag, marbles, foot races, among too many more to mention that even include word games and ways to determine who is up or it. Young people were so adaptive and inventive that they had no trouble making the most of their circumstances no matter what and tap into whatever's available. A good alternative uh, to bathing in a cold tub of water for my brother John and I was a place called the Vine Street Gym, built for the neighborhood by the famous mayor of Boston, James Michael Curley. It had hot showers and much sports equipment, including a running track. For a penny each, you could buy soap and the number of towels you need. John, my brother John, was a good boxer, and Obi, who ran the gym, wanted him to enter the Golden Gloves competition. Needless to say, we spent many hours there, and at the end of the day, Obi would make his bellowing call, time to go home, for everybody to finish up. Within two blocks of our house, just below the movie theater, there was a store selling Italian imports, run by a wonderful family with two brothers who made great cold-cut sandwiches that we call Spuckies. They were not unlike a sub or a hero sandwich. They were very busy at their slicing machines, laying out the meat and cheese on this incredible, crunchy, open-sliced bread. As you came through the door and smelled all that, you knew what you wanted. A normal sandwich was 10 or 20 cents, with your choice of what to put on it. We always got in line at Frank's machine, because he would make you a five-cent one, as he liked and was kind to kids. My five-cent order was for sweet cavacol with provolone cheese and a lather of their incredible mustard. Frank would put down a cut of white butcher paper, white butcher paper, and your eyes would watch the grace and rhythm as he would catch the slices from the wheeling blade to layer the meat and cheese across that bread, finishing with that smear of mustard. As you hand him your nickel, your glances each say, thank you. On your way out the door, you're already opening the paper to take that first big bite 
into that crunchy bread to chomp away in the mix of those great tastes. If you have another nickel, you may head for the nearest variety store or Coke machine to get a bottle of that stuff or a swig to wash it down, not letting the fizz get in your nose. After all that, you may want to take in a movie at the ideal theater nearby where they have something called continuous attractions as the shows run full all day. You could go in anytime, and when you've seen it all, you may say to yourself, hey, this is where I came in, and get up to leave or stay longer if you wish. Brother John and I also had the Boys Club, built for the children by who else? But James Michael Curley, the man who never forgot where he came from. Nice. I've, 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 I've been there. <clears throat> wow. I made a few spuckies in my day when I was a kid for wow. the, little, the little corner superette that I, I spent some time working at in the summer. It, I would say it, it's equivalent to like having a, a six-inch small sub is how right. I would describe it. What, what city? What town? Uh, this was in Everett, just north of Boston. Okay, right. Uh, I remember the store owner used to, you know, do his own pickling and all of that. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty, pretty throwback place for what it was. Very unique, yeah. Right. What I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to sort of bookend a little bit uh, on the topic of uh, our current circumstances. You know, faith began with what's going on with the pandemic, and I'm going to uh, weigh in on the same. This is a story about civil obedience and heroism. Are you a hero? You could be. It's not difficult. How many times have you seen that restaurant sign? No shoes, no shirt, no service. Have you ever been to an upscale club or venue where jacket and tie was required? Golfers at many courses and clubs are expected to wear a collared shirt. Some places of worship expect men or women to wear a hat or head covering. These are merely norms of accepted decorum in more formal, polite social settings. No one takes issue. No one protests. There are no acts of civil disobedience. Rather, everyone chooses to be civil, obedient, even polite, and part of something better. Then there's no smoking. Buckle up for safety. These were public campaigns waged to benefit the public health. They eventually became accepted behavior. They saved lives. What worked? Shaming. Smokers and scofflaws were subtly excluded, isolated, embarrassed. We live in a society where the bad personal choices that each of us makes has a negative impact on society as a whole. I'm speaking to those folks who insist on venturing out in public without a mask. If we really are all in this together, then consider this. It isn't all about you. Yes, you have your rights. What you appear to be lacking is social courage and empathy. Wearing a mask in public is one small thing that we do for the public good. This uproar over the First Amendment and your rights it's actually the mask of social cowards. We thank and praise our frontline and infrastructure workers who keep society together by providing essential services. We call them heroes. 
Oprah Winfrey challenged this year's graduates and all of us with a simple, riveting question. What is your essential service? A mask dramatically reduces your risk of infecting others by 95%. It also protects you from being infected by others. Will you please wear a mask? There's a time and a cause for civil disobedience. Not now, certainly not this. Consider a mask as a true badge of honor. Wear it with pride of purpose, doing good. In the eyes of others, it makes you a hero. We're all going to press on and look forward to finding our way to an eventual vaccine and eventual relief from what we deal with today. I will. Yeah. So that said, time to say goodbye. For all of our writers, I'm Peter J. I'm Al Larkin. Steve Sherlock. Be safe, be social, at a distance. Till next time, this is Faith. Pat Winiarski, please stay well. This is Bill Wiley. Uh, uh, take care. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.